And now will you open your Bibles to our sermon text, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Our sermon text is the fourth commandment, which begins here at verse 12, Deuteronomy 5.12, and runs through verse 15. Following our reading of Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15, we'll turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, and read the first few verses there. This is the Word of God, and so let's give it our full attention. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And now we turn to Matthew chapter 28. And I'll read the first six verses. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first of the Sabbaths, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. So we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant light to our eyes, illumination by your Holy Spirit that what we read here we might more fully understand and be more be better servants better stewards of the time that you have given us we humbly pray these things in Jesus name amen <clears throat> it's uncommon wisdom in anyone, but especially in young people, it's uncommon wisdom to realize that on some day unknown to you, 
all these years that are now slowly beginning to unfold before you, all these years will very soon come to an end. Much sooner than you think or can even imagine, either Christ is going to return in power and great glory, or you will die. There's no third way out of this. These passing years, these weeks and days and hours that you now enjoy only by the mercy of Christ, these hours have a fixed and final limit. You'll reach the last page of the story of your life and find the words, the end. The end. And God's going to close the book. And at the moment he closes the book, you have a face-to-face appointment with the author of that book. And he guarantees that you'll not be late for that appointment that you have with him. Moses prayed in the 90th Psalm, Lord, in view of the power of thine anger towards sin, In view of thy fury, according to the fear that is due thee, so teach us to number our days, that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Fallen creatures, especially young ones, it seems, fallen creatures typically suffer this self-delusion of indestructibility. We're well, we're healthy, We're only getting stronger every day, taller every day, better looking every day as we go along. Opportunities of various kinds when you're young are just multiplying before you. And many experience the temptation to assume that it's always going to be that way through life. But it won't. It won't. The plain fact is, we only have so much time given us, and we are stewards of that time, stewards of these years that we have. And so we have to learn how to manage our time well. The fourth commandment gives humanity, all of humanity, an infallible, indispensable tool for the proper management of our time. That's what it does. We often think of it as the Sabbath commandment because it begins, remember, or here in Deuteronomy, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But in fact, of course, upon second look, we realize that it helps us wisely manage all our time. Because it really has two parts, doesn't it? This commandment has two parts. First, so as to observe the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, to keep it separate and different from the rest. First of all, six days you shall labor and do all your work. So the Sabbath commandment doesn't cater to lazy people. 
if they understand this commandment as they should, lazy people don't especially like it. It doesn't indulge us. It doesn't let us sleep in every day. It doesn't let us stay up all evening and half the night watching YouTube. It disciplines us to keep busy for a full six days of the week. And not just a 40-hour week. Not just your paid time. When you're not being paid, when you're not on the company clock, there are still all these other things that you have to take care of, aren't they? The cooking, the cleaning, the laundry, the oil changes, the lawn mowing. All those things you have to do to keep your household, to keep your life running. When I'm done with my sermon preparation and my study for the week, in and around and after that time, depending on the season of the year, there's also firewood to gather and cut and split. There's a lawn to mow. There are weeds to pull. There's gardens to water. Regardless of the season, there's always laundry. There's always the next meal to put on the table. There's correspondence to answer. There are bills to pay. There are errands to run. Repairs to make. That's all part of my work. Probably part of your work. And gracious God gives us precisely six consecutive days on which to get our work done, to finish our work. And then we come to verse 14 and reach that finish line. The finish line toward which all this work aims. It strains forward until it reaches that blessed day, exactly one day in seven, that is set apart for rest. What the fourth commandment does for us is to establish the life cycle of the godly. The people loved by God and by grace and able to get their work done without wearing themselves out. Now, sustainability is a very trendy word this day, uh, these days. You hear it a lot, sustainability. We always have to be careful not to be swept along in whatever the latest jargon, the latest trends may be. But you know what? I like sustainability. I like not running out of steam, not growing old prematurely, not running out of power. I like strength, not letting myself become needlessly worn down and weak and sick because we're stewards. We're stewards of God's creation and sustainability recognizes that some resources in life need to be husbanded more carefully, more closely than others. And when it comes to the time that we have, time is not a renewable resource. You can't grow more time. 
There is no rewind button on life. We get one shot at it, one lifetime only, and then it's gone. Our Lord Jesus Christ in the 12th chapter of Luke's Gospel reminds us that these few years we have on earth are not to be spent tearing down our old barns and then building bigger ones for the future years, the years of leisure that lie ahead of us. Because who knows if those imagined years will actually come about. Who knows what even tomorrow may bring. This very night, our souls may be required of us to use Jesus' words in that parable. So in the uncertain span of time that we have, if we learn anything, we ought to learn what it is to be rich toward God what it is both to glorify him and enjoy him. So today we have this fourth commandment before us. It teaches us two things presented in this sustainable weekly cycle, a cycle of living that enables us to live in a way that is rich toward God. It teaches us, first, diligence in our callings. And then it teaches us also, at the right time, to rest. A good life is a balanced life. And the commandments give us the proper six-to-one ratio. Our Maker and Redeemer wills for us that we that you neither wear out prematurely nor rust out prematurely. Because at precisely the right moment, he is going to gather each one of us to himself when our story is finished and the book is closed and our life's work is finished. That work has this distinct six-to-one ratio. Now, an interesting thing about time. These successive days of our lives probably don't feel a great deal different from one another, do they? They don't look different from one another. But in God's good providence, from creation onward, the days are different. They are different. They're meant for different things. They're meant for different purposes. The problem is that sinners, even redeemed sinners, too often want to take the time that's given them, the days that are given us, and just run them through a blender, puree them all. All this delicious variety of life's God-given ingredients. We take all seven days a week and toss them into the blender of our own confused thinking on time management. We homogenize all these beautiful things that God designed to be distinct, to be different. Providentially, within this beautiful world he made, he's given us purple mountains, green valleys, 
golden beaches. He's made everything beautiful in this world in its place. But sinners without eyes to see the beauty of God's carefully differentiated world out there with the mountains and the valleys and the beaches and so forth, they would just as soon flatten everything out into one broad gray parking lot for, that we can all understand, that we can all work with. It's the same with time. It's the same thing with the calendar. Lazy people naturally prefer uniformity predictability day after day after day it doesn't require as much self-discipline you see doesn't require as much self-discipline on my part if I think that I have a month or two or three months maybe to do the work that is the work of six days I can just spread it out push it forward Let it spill over. What are you going to do today? It's very easy to decide what you're going to do if you do the same thing every other day of your life. Get up, go to work, come home, eat, watch the television or YouTube, and go to bed. Get up, go to work, come home, eat, watch YouTube, go to bed. Get up, go to work, come home, eat, watch YouTube, go to bed. It's very easy. But the Apostle Peter calls us stewards of the manifold grace of God. God's grace comes to us in all these different textures and colors and flavors. He created the world with distinctions, didn't he? At the very beginning, I mean, he created things with distinctions, heaven and the earth. For example, he created them and they're not the same. Light and darkness, land and sea, male and female. He created all things so. But fallen men fail to appreciate the beauty and the variety of these manifold God-given graces, including the distinct graces of work and rest. We receive all these days of our lives in a holy God-given cycle of work and rest. Careless men, including far too many Christians, receive from the hand of Christ this unspeakable gift of time. Exactly 168 hours, beautiful hours a week, and then we run them all through a blender. And so all of life takes on the same consistency. And our nights begin to feel like days with the help of modern electricity. The days spill into the nights. In some ways, our days begin to feel like nights, and every passing day looks and feels exactly the same to us as any other. We have, what we have done is move the ancient boundaries. We've moved the ancient boundaries. Beloved, 
The Bible calls the children of Adam transgressors specifically for this reason, specifically because we have this natural pre-born, inborn penchant for crossing over God's boundaries, for disregarding them. All sorts of boundaries. Ancient boundaries that God's law says we may not and actually shall not move. We couldn't actually move these God-given boundaries if we wanted to. Sinners kill themselves trying to move God's ancient boundaries or pretending that they're not really there. God's law sets up boundaries that delineate the holy from the unholy, the sacred from the common. So, for instance, adultery, going to the seventh commandment here for a moment. Adultery is a sin because a sacred boundary that God established is being crossed. My wife Mary Lou belongs to me. I belong to her. We belong only to one another. It's the same with stealing, going to the uh, the eighth commandment. It crosses the sacred boundary between what God has made my property... And what he's made your property. The same is true of unlawful incursions and interventions across the sovereign boundaries of nations and of personal dwellings. And those of you who are old enough to remember the the TV show Bewitched, this applies to nosy Gladys Kravitz, the neighbor always prying into her neighbor's business that doesn't concern her. God's law establishes these boundaries, and God himself enforces them. This being the case, I encourage you, again, always to keep your critical thinking caps on. Don't let anyone persuade you that discrimination is necessarily a bad thing. That we should be a society free of all discrimination. According to God's law, discrimination is an absolutely necessary thing for any society to exist and function. Without discrimination, we have anarchy. God as the judge is the great discriminator. And we do well to learn biblical discrimination as well, judging the right from the wrong, the lawful from the unlawful. It applies to the fourth commandment. God calls and expects us to discriminate among the days of the week. But if anything, it's more difficult to conceptualize the boundaries set in time than it is those set in real estate, for instance, or relationships or personal property. It's not the light of nature that sets the Sabbath day apart from other days. It's not. The sun doesn't shine any brighter on the Lord's day than it does any other day of the week. Food doesn't taste any better on that day. It's not any easier to get out of bed on that day than the others. It's God's word. Only his word that blessed this one day in seven and set it apart. 
It's the Lord's Day. Now, this might seem to be a pretty simple and straightforward point, but not appreciating how profoundly absolute it is causes a lot of confusion. This day is his. In a special way. Now, all the days are his, of course. Evening and morning, he made them all. But this one in seven, he blessed. He set it apart to celebrate and commemorate his work, first as the creator of the world, as we find in the commandment in Exodus 20. And then here in Deuteronomy, it commemorates him as the redeemer of his people from slavery in Egypt. The commandment really stands on those two legs, the things that it commemorates, creation and redemption. That's what we remember every Sabbath morning. I want you to think for a moment about your own household. I think about mine and the cycle of life within it. Doesn't your household have things that you call to mind one particular day a week? In my household, it runs something like this. Okay, it's Monday. So, Monday we remember to get up a little earlier to get to work. Tuesday means I'm probably going to be sitting at the computer that evening, logged into some presbytery committee or commission. They just happen to fall on Tuesday evenings. Wednesday's free night in the evening, free time at home. Thursday, the garbage goes out to the curb. Friday's date night. There are things we simply need to remember each day of the week because they are different. And then comes the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. Ah, yes. Today is the day that I remember afresh that God created me And that no matter what else may happen to me today or in the week ahead, he has set me free from slavery. I am a free man. The Lord's Day is the day to remember that. The 14th verse calls the seventh day a Sabbath of the Lord your God. It's his day. He made it. And if he made it, friends, if he made it, he can change it. We can't. The church can't because it's not our day to tinker with. But our Creator and Redeemer can. And in the New Testament... He does. The scribes and Pharisees, you remember, the scribes and Pharisees can't believe what they see this man, Jesus, doing on their Sabbath day. He's healing people with withered hands. He's feeding people hungry for gleanings from the grain field. He's doing all these wonderful things and more, and it's beyond them even to accept it, much less rejoice in what he is doing 
on their Sabbath day because they have the Lord's day all bound up and packaged as though it were their day. We really ought to appreciate, even rejoice in the fact that it's the Lord's day. He's Lord of the day. It doesn't work the other way around. The day doesn't dictate to Jesus what he can and cannot do on the day. What Jesus does and doesn't do on this day is a reflection of his own divine character. After all, doesn't the psalmist put it this way in one place? The Lord does what he pleases in all heavens, earth, deeps, and floods. He does what he pleases. The day is his. It's not mine. As Lord, he can observe it as he wishes. He can change it if he wishes. And in the New Testament, he very plainly does change it. His treatment of the Sabbath throughout the New Testament is a plain illustration of his absolute sovereign lordship. But going back to the Old Testament, we see some changes already in what this day signifies as we go from Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy 5, just a generation later. In Exodus, you remember, it commemorates the six days of creation, and then here in Deuteronomy, it widens to signify also Israel's redemption from over 400 years of Egyptian slavery. The day hasn't changed. It's still the seventh day, but here it signifies more than it did back in Exodus. Throughout the Old Testament, it opens our eyes to wider and wider vistas of God's great work as creator and as redeemer. And then, friends, we come to the Gospels. And here in the Gospels, we read of an event that absolutely unhinges the Sabbath day. Rather like the prison house doors in Philippi were unhinged when the earthquake struck. And you remember from the 16th chapter of Judges what Samson did to the city of Gaza in the middle of the night as the Philistines surrounded him, plotting to take him prisoner the next morning, He arose at midnight, Samson did. He took the whole gate of the city off its hinges, he put it on his own shoulders, and disposed of it at the top of the nearest mountain. With a display of raw power, he unhinges the gate and escapes the power of his foes. It's a similar case in the gospel. In Matthew 28, verses 1 and 2, we read of another earthquake, another unhinging, another deliverance. We find in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ another demonstration of the raw power of God. It's an unhinging, but not of a prison door, not of a city gate. The unhinging not only of a stone being rolled across a tomb. 
This is the unhinging of an ancient memorial. Christ at his resurrection from the dead takes this memorial commandment off its hinges and he places it again where it would best remind us of his redemption. Matthew 28.1 begins literally in these words. As I read earlier in our scripture reading, but after the Sabbaths, with the dawning into the first of the Sabbaths, most of our English translations have the word the first of the week. In Greek it is the first of the Sabbaths. After the Sabbaths, with the dawning into the first of the Sabbaths. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead early on the first day of the week is an event so surpassingly glorious. It overshadows God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. But more than that, the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead eclipses in glory even the creation of the heavens and the earth. Chew on that a while. This day, on this day, sin and death are vanquished by this resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week men might now begin to live according to the power of an indestructible life. As the author of Hebrews puts it, this day represents a new creation. And so it's Christ, it's not the church, but it's Christ that moves this monument that has been set in time from the beginning. And the whole calendar shifts with it from the resurrection morning onward. When does the church meet? From your, from your reading of the book of Acts, when do we find the church, the New Testament church, meeting? Well, wherever in the New Testament that day is specified, it's always the first day of the week. It's the power and grace and glory of the resurrection we commemorate. The Westminster Larger Catechism put it this way in the answer to question 116. What is required in the fourth commandment? That's the question, 116 in the Larger Catechism. The answer is this. The fourth commandment requireth of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word expressly one whole day in seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, and the first day of the week ever since, and so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath, and in the New Testament called the Lord's Day. So this is the what and the when of the fourth commandment, but let's spend just a moment now looking at the how. 
How do we observe this day? First of all, I need to say that our primary duty on the Sabbath isn't the duty of going to church. Meeting together to worship is vitally important, of course, but it's not what we find highlighted when God first instituted the Sabbath in Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Going to church doesn't appear in the fourth commandment of Exodus 20, where we're told to remember what had evidently been forgotten over 400 years in Egypt. Going to church doesn't appear here in the fourth commandment a generation later on the plains of Moab. Before anything else, the fourth commandment tells us to rest. On this day, rest. It's been that way since the beginning before the fall of Adam into sin. What this means is that even in the best of times, before the thorns, before the thistles, before the sweat and the returning to dust, before all of that, humanity still needed to rest. Stop doing whatever it is you've been doing for this one whole day in seven. Do something completely different. Rest. Because God finished what he was doing in six days. Then on the seventh, he turned to something equally important. He enjoyed it. God rested. You too, give it a break. On the Lord's day, why not leave the books unopened? Why not leave the phone off the hook? Rest. This resting gives us probably the week's best opportunity also. Secondly, to reflect. It's a day to reflect. A day to consider anew the glorious, eternal things that six days of labor don't afford us the time to consider. It's a day to reflect on things like his kingdom and his power and his glory. It's a day to lift our noses from the grindstone long enough and high enough for our eyes to consider the stars and the one whose fingers made them. On this day, we join individual reflection with corporate expressions of the same. That is, we, thirdly, reassemble. We reassemble to strengthen ourselves, to hold fast the public confession of our faith without wavering, to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to encourage one another as we see that coming day of final rest drawing near. It's not a day for the flower to be out of water, and it's not a day for the Christian to be out of church. We reassemble. We also have the opportunity on the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, to recalibrate. Recalibrate. 
Over the last six days, we have been running here and there, and we've been doing this and that. We have moved. We have moved. But God hasn't moved. And so, as with a map and magnetic compass, we have to recalibrate our position occasionally. And we have the Sabbath day to do this. Christ is our magnetic north. He is our magnetic north. The Bible, like a compass in this northern hemisphere, the Bible will always point us to him. The Sabbath gives us an opportunity and an obligation to open our Bibles and recalibrate our present position on the face of the earth and so find our way back to him. Finally, on the Christian Sabbath, let us rejoice. Rejoice. It's the day the gates of Christ's righteousness opened to us and we've entered. It's the day of his resurrection. On this day, we've seen the stone rejected by the builders become the chief cornerstone of his people. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this day, for the time that it affords us to give ourselves to the things that are worthy, altogether worthy of our consideration. We pray that you would enable us to find rest in this day. You have brought us here to reassemble. You have granted us rejoicing and recalibration as we consider Christ and his glory. You have done all of these things for us and more. And we thank you for this monument in time that give us and put before us in a special way your glory as creator, your grace as redeemer, your power as the one who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that these things would become common to us, common to our thinking, and that you would enable us to grow in grace through all the years and days and hours of our life. We humbly ask in Jesus, our Redeemer's name. Amen.